no post crowns, no more crowns, because obviously now we're heading in the direction that everything should be an onlay. Obviously, it's a sin to do a full coverage crown uh, and posts are out of the equation. And if you have to use a post, you're going to use a fiber post, not a cast post. Well, this sounds very familiar, right? This sounds like the way that we've been heading. But Pasquale Venuti offers some different and alternative points of view that I think are very much worth listening. So I left you in a cliffhanger last time with that episode, The Anti-Biomatic Dentist Part 1 with Dr. To Pasquale Venuti. Welcome back. This is part two, where he will answer that question about the whole no post, no crown philosophy, what he makes of it. But he also talks about something called process-based reasoning versus outcome-based reasoning. So I, I guess the bone that Pasquale Venuti has uh, to pick with the biometric group, the quote-unquote beef he has with so-called biometric group, is that everything they're saying, all the little micro steps in achieving the highest bond strength, which is very admirable, right? But everything they're doing is process-based, right? It's a little process. Tweak this, tweak that, and uh, let's see if we can improve our immediate results, our immediate bond strengths or aesthetics or whatever it might be. But you see, Pasquale Venuti argues that this process-based reasoning is probably not what we need. We want outcome-based reasoning, right? Because what Pasquale Venuti looks for is, okay, by doing these little micro steps, these extra steps that want, which might be time-consuming and might cost you more money, are they actually going to yield a long-term result, i.e. are they actually going to add years to the restoration and we just don't have that data? Now, I talk about this a bit more towards the end of the episode, but Pasquale will do this all uh, justice. Now, the protrusive dental pearl I have for you before we join the main episode is something that I've talked about before. It's about using a mouth prop. Like, I'm a big fan of using rubber dam, and again, I'll reference to why this is relevant at the end. So make sure you stick to the end of the episode to hear why I am a hypocrite, and I'm happy to say that, right? So I'm a hypocrite because I, I use rubber dam, but I'll, I'll come to that to the end. Now, because I use rubber dam, I use a mouth prop, right? So if my patient's going to be having their mouth open for 45 minutes or an hour plus, I'll use a mouth prop, which is like one of those little plastic wedges that you put on one side, and it helps to keep their mouth open. Now, what I say to my patients is it's the difference between holding your elbow out at 90 degrees, okay, and after a while, your, your arm gets tired, right? And so it's much better when you get to lean your elbow against a table. Oh, now your muscles can relax. It's the same way with the muscle mastication and the lateral pterygoids in particular. You know, the mouth opening muscle, the depressor, right? These muscles can get tired by stretching open. Like, have you observed some patients, they keep closing their mouth, right? They, they struggle to keep their mouth open. They keep wanting to close. Their muscles get tired, they get fatigued. So by giving a mouth prop, you're essentially giving that elbow a table to lean against. Now, the problem is, because I've talked about the use of a mouth prop before, but the angle I'm coming from now is if you ask the patient, hey, would you like to use a mouth prop? It'll help to keep your mouth open. Then the patient's going to say, no, no, it's okay. No, no, it's, it's okay, fine. It's, it's, you know, just do what you do. You, you do what you need to do. I don't want to be, I don't want to cause any trouble, right? You shouldn't say that because you see patients don't say yes to it. Not because they're afraid of it, because it's, it's the default answer, right? You know, it's the default answer that patients would give. So instead, here's what I say to my patients. Mrs. Smith, I'm going to put this mouth prop in so that instead of keeping your mouth open the whole time, your jaw can relax against this little plastic wedge. It will stop those poor muscles from getting tired. I'm just going to put this in before I put the rubber sheet on. That's it. No one ever says no, okay? And whilst my patients might not realize it, they're definitely better off because the number of patients who have an achy jaw at the end is way less and it, this just makes sense, right? It's a good thing to do for your long procedure. So anytime I'm using rubber dam, my nurse knows that I need to use my mouth prop and it's better to, you propose to your patient in that way rather than asking your patient, hey, should we use a, a mouth prop? They'll be like, no, 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 it's fine. So A, use a mouth prop and B, present it in a clever way. Now, I've got lots of uh, reflections littered throughout this podcast, and I'll also catch you in the outro. So the, the next thing we want to talk about, Pasquale, is uh, the whole 
concept of uh, no post, no crown. So this, this concept of we want to avoid placing posts as much as possible and we want to avoid doing crowns and instead do onlays to maintain the gingival third of tooth structure where you know which which is responsible for the strength of the tooth now my own personal views on posts is that i haven't placed a post for like maybe two years now because for me if i don't if i have enough ferrule then i think almost i don't need a post uh, i can just rely on my my composite and the the crown will be engaged in a ferrule if i don't have any ferrule then i'm thinking why are we even using a post here so just before we continue the interview guys i just wanted to talk about the ferrule if you're a young dentist or a student and you're listening to this and you don't know what a ferrule is it's super important imagine you have a central incisor and it's fractured at the gingival level it's like the worst kind of emergency you can deal with right and there's very little tooth structure now imagine you stick a post inside and you build up a core your crown is completely on core material. Think of the bending and the stress at that adhesive interface, right? This is not ideal. Now, imagine now, uh, just to make it easier, we're not going to talk about crown lengthening and that kind of stuff. Just imagine now that when this tooth broke, instead of breaking at, you know, flush to the gingival level, it broke two millimeters supra gingival above the gum, two millimeters supra gingival. Now, when you build up your core and now you prepare this tooth for a crown, for example, okay, central incisor we're talking here, now, now, instead of your crown being entirely on the core material and all the stress going through the core, it's now gripping that precious two millimeters of tooth structure. That precious two millimeters of rim all the way around the tooth is the ferrule. And inside the crown, the most gingival few millimeters of it, that's the ferrule effect being gained by the crown. So this is incredibly important for the longevity and success of your restorations. If a tooth doesn't have a ferrule, its predictability decreases massively. So for me, that, that tooth is for the bin or needs some crown lengthening or something like that. Or even if I can't get that ferrule from um, a vertical preparation, for example, we can give you a little bit more ferrule to play with. For me, that tooth is unrestorable. So I'd love to hear your views on this mantra of no post, no crown and, and find out how much you in your daily dentistry uh, are using posts at the moment. So first, I, I don't like slogan. That's why I don't like the slogan, no post, no crown. So it's like, uh, it's like, uh, it's like a market. We want to sell something with the slogan. So <laughs> it's not, it's not easy to, to separate things. It's not easy to find a solution for everything. I mean, nowadays, uh, of course, also thanks to the adhesive procedure, uh, we don't need to use so many posts as before. I barely remember uh, a molar in the last six months that I used the post, for example. Mm -hmm. So in the posterior region, it's very rarely that I use a post. Alice tooth is completely broken, or the patient is in a Braxer patient. But in anterior area, the, the game is different. It's different for many reasons. When uh, somebody tells me that he doesn't use post in anterior area, or he doesn't use cast post, honestly, I have a clear idea of uh, who is talking with me. So he has no idea about dentistry. Because you know, when you, when you, when you do a lot of anterior teeth, uh, you realize that some teeth are different. I will give you an example, but I will show you later in the presentation. Uh, you have a, a broken teeth at the level of a gum, okay? So you have to rebuild in composite for doing an abutment, five millimeter of incisors, okay? An mm -hmm. abutment of five millimeter. So sometimes, especially lower incisors or upper lateral incisors are very thin. You end up with an abutment of two millimeter in thickness. So imagine mm -hmm. a massive composite 
five millimeter high and two millimeter thick. So almost almost a cantilevering of uh, of the tooth, almost like a uh, yeah you know, yeah like you could you could snap it yeah. Composite in two millimeter is easily to yeah. bend, so it cannot resist. Mm -hmm. So the only way for some teeth just to cast post because the only post that can you can manage a one point five millimeter of thickness is just metal. You have no other option. Another mm -hmm. problem sometimes, especially in anterior area, the root is in not on the same part of the crown. So if you place a post, a prefabricated post, you will place along the root. So you will end up with the post, it will destroy with the preparation. So guys, Pascal Ivanuti made a really good point here, right? If you follow the root of the tooth, and like, you know, when you stick a post into a root and you've done enough posts, you'll know what I mean. You stick a fiber post in, for example, and you observe that the direction of the post is going off to one direction. Let's say it's going off more to the labial, right? Because if you imagine putting in the root and it coming straight out of the root, well, the crown of a tooth doesn't come out straight from the root. It actually angles, right? And because that angle, that offset, what you find is that your post is too much to one side. So we now build up the core and you start preparing the tooth, you'll notice that actually you're shaving away the post crown. The post crown itself is too far to one side. And we can get around this issue with a cast post. So sometimes you have to correct the position. So you have to customize the post. And the only object to use a cast post so there are even nowadays, of course, there are rare cases. In a year, I use no more than 10 cast posts, but there are cases that you have no other option unless mm -hmm. you decide to extract the tooth. Of course, this mm -hmm. is an option, but remember this, when you have no ferrule, okay, cast post is your ferrule because you will create a resistance form inside the root. Of course, mm -hmm. you can risk as a last resort, the crack of the root at some point, but it's better than the extraction of the tooth. In my experience, I did till now almost 250 cast posts, okay? In teeth, completely broken at the level of the gum. In these 20 years of practice, I have zero root fracture, and just one demolding that I will show you later in the presentation. In so the these are cases, Pasquale, with, with no ferrule, yeah? Because it's no external ferrule. Zero. Zero. Okay. Zero. So this is Zero. where I have personally, I have shown from my, you know, worldview and my experiences, I tend to shy away and I tend to uh, maybe send to the implantologist at that point. But, you know, I, uh, from, I learn from you and I say, okay, I respect your experience and for, for to, to try these uh, posts, it looks like you've had a fairly good success rate with that. So if you do a correct cast post, okay, forget to extract the tooth in less than 10 years. So so it's very, mm. very longevous, even if you are completely down the gum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, with the vertical prep, you are able to recover a little bit of ferrule, yep. just a little yep. bit, but not so much. But mm. anyway, the cast post is so stiff that it will avoid any bending of the residual dental structure. It will be quite longevous for some time. You know, it's it's a very controversial issue in dentistry, the, the use of posts and stuff, but uh, I, I respect that when you taught me in Sydney was the benefits of a cast post compared to a, a fiber post, which hopefully we can just discuss a little bit now as well. You know, Where do you lie on this uh, usage of fiber posts? And obviously you've talked about the, the benefits of a cast post in terms of customization and stiffness. Uh, what is the big downfall of using fiber posts? You know, cast post has become quite disused in the last, so you know, Casposa has never been so popular because uh, uh, learning doing Casposa is very steep curve. It's not easy. So uh, you need the skills from the dentist and skill from the technician. It's not an easy approach. 
And then you need a second appointment. The patient has to come back again just for the post. So I mean, in a, in a, in a fast workflow, it's not easy uh, to be inside. Uh, that's why during the years, uh, thanks to this prefabricated post, cast post has become less popular. So, but uh, th there are no other option in many, many clinical cases. So uh, I, I told you there are 10 cases in my clinical practice every year that I need a cast post. And there is no other option. The only option to extract the two. Because if I place another post or a fiber post or a dentatus post, I will collect failure in one, two years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, many implantologists prefer to extract the tooth and place an implant. So, so I'm not in against implants, but there are some cases, some young patients or some patients that are very debilitated, some eight years old patients with a lot of health problems that maybe they will be better served by Caspos, okay, for the last five, six years of their life. Mm -hmm. What about those cases where you do have, you know, two millimeters of a ferrule and in those cases, would you uh, just build up with composite and not use a post or would you be open to using a fiber post uh, for convenience uh, in those cases that have a root canal treatment, obviously? You know, it, 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 dep it depends on the occlusal uh, and the mechanic biomechanical demand of the patients. So if you have an anterior area, for example, you have a lot of tensional stresses. If you are in posterior areas, you are in compressive areas. So when you go back, uh, you don't need post, honestly, especially because a molar is very big. When you build up a molar, the composite is five, six millimeter in thickness. So it's quite rigid. When you move forward, especially in thin incisors, composite is very thin. So it's mechanical, not insufficient for uh, the work is deputed to do. That's why more I go forward, the more it's probable that I use some post. I do not use fiber post for one simple reason. I will show you later why I do not use fiber post from the biomechanical point of view. But I do not use fiber post because I love the principle plan for failure. When you use fiber post, you will not retreat the tooth anymore. In case you need retreatments, you are f***ed up 90% of the times. Because I did, because I placed almost 300 fiber posts. So I had to retreat, but I had to extract the tooth most of the time. So it's interesting because when when we are taught um, posts and crowns in dental school, the the angle that we are coming from is that if you do a cast post, uh, when a failure happens, the tooth will fail and you have to do extraction. But uh, the, 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 what they say is that when you do a fiber post, then the post will fail and then maybe you have a second chance of the tooth. But obviously from experience, you've shown that you are bugged. What is the main complication you face in retreating a failed fiber post? Because yeah. to, I'll be honest with you, I am not experienced enough to have um, dealt with the failures of fiber posts in, 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 in quantity. So I would uh, very much like to learn that from you. People concentrate on the fiber post. The problem is not the fiber post because another fiber post detach. The problem is the cement that is beyond the tip of the fiber post. The resin cement. So sometimes you have one, two millimeter of resin cement at the bottom and you cannot retreat the tooth anymore. That's why when I use the entatus post, I ensure myself that the tip of the post will reach the gutta percha. I will never left any cement beyond the tip of the post. The tip of the post has to screw just a bit inside the gutta percha. Because if I have to remove the post, just rotating, I will crack all the resin cement and then I will have free way to the gutta percha. 
With okay, the pivot so you're, 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 you're coming from the angle of uh, retreating the, the actual root canal failing as well, basically, right? I, I come from the humble, the, from the field of humbleness. I learn that we are not God. Sometimes we do wrong things, endodontically speaking. Sometimes the nature is not so friendly. So that's why I know that sometimes I have to retreat the tooth. I have the possibility and fiber post because not giving me any biomechanical advantage and because they make the retreatments quite unretreatable, I will not use anymore in my practice. That's it. With well, the uh, good, poster, it... I can reach the good aperture every time I am sure to be in good aperture. So I am sure. The, the common objection you will get from most dentists uh, who haven't been to any of your lectures and teachings is that um, the short metal posts uh, are going to put a lot of stress in the dentine and then you will get a crack. I know because I've been to your lecture about what, what, what is the advantage of it, but what would you say to these dentists who are concerned uh, about the root fracturing in the short dentaceous posts that finish in the coronal third of the root very often when I've, when I've seen you do them? Am I, am I right? Yes? So I never place the if the tadus post that is not beyond the point of inflection. You mean the point of inflection, the point of bending is the level of the bone. You mm. have to be sure that the post is beyond is, uh, is cervically to the level of the bone. Because if mm. you place a post that is below the level of the bone, it's completely useless. You know, because mm. the mm. the tooth will bend at that point. So your post has to be below. So placing a, a longer post in my opinion, at zero benefit, unless, mm -hmm. unless the crown is completely broken at the level of the gum. At that point, the pause has to be as long as possible. But that's it. Okay. But if the crown is quite conserved, you don't need to go so much inside. Okay. This is, Brilliant. My, well, this is my experience. That, that's good to share because, again, like I said, there's a lot of confusion about posts. So it's good to, to hear your, your guidelines. Guys, I'm just going to interject. When I saw uh, Pasquale in Sydney uh, lecture, he mentioned one point which he didn't really elaborate on in this podcast. But one of the functions of the dentatus, this little uh, gold colored like screw type post, right? The reason he uses it is to actually give his composite some stiffness, right? Especially for an incisor, for example, if you're building up the, the core in composite, it can get very thin. So by adding this type of post in, which is metal, it gives it some stiffness. It's prefabricated, you don't have to send an impression, and he just screws it just, just a tiny bit into the gutta perca. And the point he makes that the length of this post has to be more apical than the bone level has to be more apical than the bone level because it's at the bone level where all the stresses are being concentrated. So if it's coronal to the bone level, then it's adding to the problem. So if you are going to do something like this and make sure your post is long enough that it's going beyond or more apical to the bone level. Fantastic. So uh, I think we, we've done a lot of uh, coverage there on uh, post crowns. Should we move on? Because I think we covered a little bit about fiber versus metal. Yeah, sure. uh, you, you've already talked about C-factor already. So we can go to the last question, which is fibers and dentistry. Is that cool with you? Amazing. Okay, so we, we've covered a lot of ground there. That's why we had to make it into a multi-part episode, I think, which is, which is amazing. So thanks for covering so many uh, and get sharing your views. Lastly, can you tell us about this rise in the use of fibers uh, in, in dentistry? What I, what I mean is not fiber posts. I mean, for those listening, these are little fibers that you can place inside cavities before then you uh, place composite on top is what I've seen uh, a lot of my colleagues practice on, on, on social media and some 
proponents of biomimetic dentistry are suggesting that there are many benefits in terms of stress reduction of using fibers. Have you got any experience of using these, uh, Pasquale, uh, or any viewpoints on this? So uh, during, during the years, uh, uh, we are going to uh, substitute what has proven to be good, what, what we think is good. Uh, you know, you can think wherever you like it is good, but you have to prove it's good. So uh, what I learned on my shoulder that I will not embrace anything that has not a follow-up of at least 10 years. So if somebody wants to convince me about something, he has to show me follow-ups at least of 10 years. So when we talk about uh, fibers for reinforcing composite fillings, uh, uh, I don't know, for reducing crack propagation, I mean, there are a lot of uh, alleged function of these fibers. So I cannot find any follow-up paper in dental literature. Maybe there is some follow-up in one, two years, okay? You know, but even digital dentistry, feeling done with the finger lasts at least five years. So <laughs> I think it's not enough. From the rational point of view, in my opinion, they are completely useless. Uh, and from the outcome point of view, they are not supported by any outcome. You know, it's just a trend now in dentistry uh, because uh, we love to do new things in every field. So, uh, but the problem that I, I would not to complicate my procedures. For example, you know, uh, when we do uh, adhesive dentistry, some people use chlorhexidine before mm. placing the adhesive because you can inhibit the metalloproteinase. You know, I don't know if this is true, it doesn't true, it doesn't matter. Can you prove me that this will move longer the longevity of my restoration because that's exactly what i think if you cannot improve something i will not add to my step because many steps make the procedure very tough for me for my assistance for the patient because there is a tomorrow dentist a tomorrow a tomorrow assistance and a tomorrow patients i want to stress myself and the people surrounding me with the useless procedure one of the reasons that i do not love so much adhesive procedure that they require multiple steps. And it's um, easier to do some mistakes when you do multiple steps. When you have just to mix a cement and plonk a ground, you know, it's an idiot-proof procedure. But when you start to increase the, the stuff you have to put inside the tooth, you start to mess up, or you or your assistant. Anyway, I don't see any point to use fibers uh, because adhesion works very well when you have the right condition and composite work very well if you are in the right condition. So I don't know how fibers can increase the performance of a filling. I don't know. Yeah, so I was just going to say, I think you're coming to the same point, was that if in 10 years time or 15 years time by knowing how things are the papers come out and say actually those composites that had a fiber as part of their protocol maybe done in some university somewhere uh, in the hundreds versus those composites uh, that didn't have any fibers in similar uh, cavity conditions seem to have a less rate of cohesive failure or something like this maybe then because i respect you as a clinician i think maybe then you would say yeah okay there are some studies now 10 years it is a uh, significant in statistics that you might use it but you know what's going to happen the problem with these studies is that do they will not control for their biomechanical status of these patients. So this is where the flaws of the studies come in in terms of getting uh, homogenous, sorry, uh, population samples. But that's in a whole nother debate about evidence-based dentistry. I would not to be, you know, they will never produce any paper 
how many randomized clinical trials have you seen in dentistry at 10 years? Very few, very few. <laughs> Zero, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know but, but the same, you know, uh, for example, during this pandemic, uh, Pfizer uh, presented the randomized clinical trial for the approval of the vaccine just of two months. During mm -hmm. these two months, uh, they divide the patient in two groups. One group received the vaccine and one group didn't receive the vaccine. So in both groups, the death failure was the same. So, I mean, the vaccine didn't have any benefit. You can read the, the paper. So I, we don't know what would happen in six months, one year. By the way, the paper is just two months. So the only difference in the two groups were in the group with the placebo, they get more COVID than in the group with vaccine, but the death rate and hospitalization were the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That is medicine, that is the industry. So uh, we have very few serious clinical, randomized clinical trials, and most of them are just for a few months. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even about only. So I will show you during the presentation that we have no dental leader supporting the so-called biomimetic dentistry, zero. We have some papers with 10, 20, 30 follow-ups about crowns, but zero, zero paper about flat olives, just some clinical cases, some case reports, that's it. So they, they're basing a, a new slogan, a new group just on nothing. So guys, after this discussion with Pasquale, I started to look for some evidence, right? Because Pasquale says there's no clinical evidence for any of this stuff working, particularly when it comes to ribbon in particular, as we're discussing, right? So I reached out some uh, really prominent figures in biomimetic dentistry and didn't really get answers, really, uh, unfortunately. But then the legend, uh, who is Taylor Patton, who's our guest on our introductory episode to biomimetic dentistry, that was PDP 135. God bless your soul, Taylor. He gave me a lovely reply with some resources and references. What I love about Taylor, though, is is that he actually said that, you know what, it'd, it'd be nice to have more clinical data. Because when I clicked on to those links and the research that was presented that's available out there, it was all on extracted teeth. These are bench top studies. So what Pasquale says is very much true in a way, right? There's so much process-based reasoning, right? Oh, do this, improve that bond strength. But where is the outcome? You know, compared to a standard class two composite, for example, how much longer would a rib bond reinforced class two composite really last? We really need to know this before we take added time and added expense to do such procedures. Let's say tomorrow a study was done and it was like a 15-year follow-up. And what they found was that uh, composites without the fiber lasted 11.5 years. And the composites with the fiber lasted 12 years. So half a month more and it said that this was not statistically significant. I'm just making up a random scenario. You probably wouldn't want to use it with extra time and extra expense that you're passing on to the patient. Does it really add significant benefit? However, if the outcome studies were very promising and it significantly extends the life expectancy of your restorations, then of course we should all be using it routinely. How important are these contemporary things like ribbon and stuff compared to getting the tooth clean and rough? What I mean by that and what I'm referencing to is a fantastic episode we did with Dr. David Jadol, episode PDP 077. This episode was called I Can't Believe This Sticks, Extreme Bonding, right? Extreme Bonding Exposed. And what David Jadol said was that as long as you get a nice clean tooth structure and you get a good etch pattern, that these two are so, so crucial in bond strength and longevity. 
So how much more do these extra steps like using chlorhexidine, using Ribbon actually add? So this is the kind of data that we really want. Now, what I don't want to sound like is I'm taking the side of Pasquale. Like we're friends and I, I respect him so much as a dentist and I've learned so much from him, but I don't want to seem like I'm bashing biomatic dentistry and I'm totally bashing Ribbon because that would make me a hypocrite. I'll tell you why, right? Remember I told you at the beginning about rubber dam? I love using rubber dam. I'm a huge fan of it. I think it makes a big difference. Like when you're doing adhesive dentistry, right? And you're not using rubber dam and you have a mirror and you notice that the mirror is steaming up. I always think like, what's happening to your bonding surface? What's happening to your etched enamel, right? Because I do make the effort if I'm doing, that, doing it that way that I encourage the patients to breathe through their nose. And if they're an obligate mouth breather, I will definitely be using rubber dam. Like I used rubber dam for about 80% of my dentistry. But guess what? There are no clinical trials supporting the use of rubber dam. So there we are. I'm a hypocrite, right? I'm saying that I'm debating with you that perhaps Ribbon isn't all that because we don't have the clinical long-term data. But here I am using rubber dam and I'm so religious about using rubber dam. Now, interestingly, there was recently an in-situ study, right? What they did was they made like a splint with a wisdom tooth in it and they attached it on the, onto a real patient, a real person, and they carried out the adhesive dentistry on an extracted tooth, but in the patient's mouth with and without rubber dam. And they found that categorically, with rubber dam had better bond strength. So they kind of showed in an in-situ environment that it is beneficial. But why don't we have a clinical study comparing patients having adhesive procedures with and without dam? Well, there are some ethical concerns and we might never actually get such studies. Ultimately, I do think that biomimetic dentists, when they are doing what they do, the protocols that they follow, they're so passionate about it. And I really admire that about them, right? And I think everything that they're doing is with the best interest of the patient at heart. I really do think these clinicians are trying to get the best bond strengths and whether or not that actually translates to clinical success long-term, we don't know but we also don't know that by rubber dam, right? So I'm saying great points, Pasquale, about process-based reasoning and outcome-based reasoning. But I think biometric guys, you know, I really admire that you are really trying to do something. You are doing the research behind it to the capacity that you can. And I've seen loads of biometric dentists, especially on social media, so passionate about what they do. And that's beautiful, right? It's like when dentistry becomes an art, when you can really fall in love with the nuances of what you're doing, that's when dentistry, I think, becomes less like work and more like fun. So I think we can definitely take a leaf from their book. Well, I, I look forward to, to hosting the biometric group who will give their viewpoint as well and let's listen to them let's share and i was gonna while you were saying that i was thinking already it's the same with uh, many aspects of dentistry including occlusion there is very little evidence in occlusion and stuff yeah. so a lot of it is uh, dogmas and a lot of it is uh, marketing and that kind of stuff so we have to respect that but that's a, a whole another debate and this is why i respect your uh, way that you taught me look at the biomechanical demand of a patient and create an environment that is going to reduce the biomechanical failure and keep everything you know shallow in that patient compared to someone else who you can do anything in that patient and you will succeed yeah that, that, that's it so if you choose the right patient you will succeed you know the problem is uh, when, when, you, when you work in Manhattan okay you work in a posh office okay you receive some kinds of patients some women that are the wives of some oligarchs you receive patients that do some work at some desk when you work in a village you work with patients, they are mainly truck drivers, there are farmers. Most of those patients have very low income. Some, many women live with uh, husbands, they are alcoholists. Uh, many women have a lot of children with uh, some Down syndrome, 
or some autism. So uh, they have extremely low income for living. They are not living in Manhattan with a lot of goals to help them. So the, the profile of this patient is completely different. They cannot take care too much of their teeth from the oral hygiene point of view. Uh, they develop bruxism very easily because they live in very stressful way. So uh, there isn't even another problem, it's a genetic problem. Where are the people that go to Manhattan? They go to Manhattan, the people that are the most beautiful and most successful people. So people there uh, an advantage from the genetical point of view. Uh, uh, all the people there, the, 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 the best woman of the village will go to the city. Over the years, uh, it always happened because a rich man will come from the city and will uh, pick up the best women of the village. So who will stay in the village? Who will stay in the periphery? So the poorest people, the people with a, a, a genetic array that tend, tend to be poorer, it's not poorer, it's just in average poorer. So in the village, there is also most inbreeding between uh, people. So over the years, there is a lot of inbreeding because we live isolated for many years, for centuries. In the cities, there is a lot of crossing over, okay, from different races. So that's why the genetic in some offices is different from the genetic in another office. It's not just a, a, a problem of the environment. It's a multi-level problems. And people do not consider all these kind of things. You're right. This is the first time it's ever been discussed in this podcast. And it's, I, I was really yeah. waiting for you to discuss these uh, high level philosophies because I remember just how you talk about dogmas and you love reading your books and the philosophies. Yeah. And I see your post on Tomorrow Tooth are, are very much rich in historical events and how you analyze uh, different data. So uh, we love that. I love that. I love to hear these perspectives. Uh, and I thank you for sharing that so much. Because, because you think that if you go in New Delhi, in the most posh office of New Delhi, you have the same genetic pattern of patient of the village in the Rajasthan, somewhere on the mountains. Very well said. Very well said. Very well said, Pasquale. I'm so, so thankful for your time. Uh, thankful it's for a, all that you pleasure. do in posting your cases because I learned so much from them over the years. You've taught me so much. So much of my daily dentistry has been uh, molded by you, you and your principles, which I have tested and I'm finding success from. So thank you for improving me as a dentist and thank you for, for, no for inspiring a community. And I look forward to sharing with all, with all the producerati this episode. Thank you so much and have a fantastic weekend. Yeah, thank you. Well, there we have it, guys. The end of this two-part controversial series. Like, if you enjoyed this and you want to see Pasquale Venuti live, then he will be lecturing in Bucharest. I'm going to put the details in the show notes so you can check that out. Do me a favor. If you like my podcast and you think they're thought-provoking and they help your clinical dentistry or they make you feel more passionate about our profession, then share it with a colleague. I'd really appreciate that. Oh, and don't forget, if you're Protrusive Premium, on the app, either on the web app, protrusive.app, or on iOS or Android, you can claim CPD for this and get access to loads of clinical videos I'm constantly updating every month. Thanks again for listening all the way to the end. I'll catch you in the next episode.